Once again, the Middle East is convulsed with violence as Israel has seen some of the most serious rocket attacks in almost a decade. As a response to this, there has also been an escalation of attacks by the IDF within Gaza. There are, at the same time, events of violence between what appears to be Arab and Jewish citizens of Israel. And of course, all of this comes in the backdrop of complex dynamics between the Biden administration, Iran, and some of our regional allies. So what is going on here? What caused this to happen seemingly out of the blue? The reality is that almost everything that seems to be happening, as is so often the case in the Middle East, has an underlying and sometimes hidden explanation. On this episode, we will peel back the curtain and see if we can get at what is really going on, and what I think at least, is driving the outbreak of violence here. I'm Dr. Nolte, and this is Blind Politics. And welcome, podcast listeners, to a hopefully educational episode of Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte. I am Dr. A.J. Nolte, Assistant Professor of Government at Regent University's Robertson School of Government. Once again, views expressed in this podcast do not represent those of either Regent University or the Robertson School. Please remember that you can rate and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast provider, assuming said provider has a rating system. Five-star ratings help us out. So if you like the podcast, please leave one of those. If you don't like the podcast, you can also leave one of those and just leave some negative comments if you feel so led. You can find us on Facebook at Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte and also on the Facebook and Instagram feeds of the Robertson School. Okay, so I want to break down in this episode what is happening in Israel. The Middle East is kind of my, my wheelhouse. It's where I cut my teeth. I started my research, of course, on politics in both the Christian and Muslim world, and particularly in areas where those overlap. You can't do that without having some familiarity with the Middle East. And since I've started at Regent, I've also been teaching a history and politics of Israel class. So what seems to be happening. If you read the news, what you hear about, you hear about rocket attacks, rockets being fired into Israel from Hamas uh, bases in Gaza. You hear about um, Israel uh, engaging in a he- sort of what is described as a very heavy bombing campaign in Gaza itself in retaliation for these rocket attacks. You hear about some uh, sporadic episodes of violence within Israel that seem to be linked to this broader conflict. And you are hearing the Biden administration is sort of being a little bit circumspect, whereas more progressive elements within the Democratic Party are attacking uh, Israel, and of course, more conservative elements and the Republican Party are more defensive of Israel, but the Biden administration is taking a cautious approach thus far. Now, there's a lot that's, that's going on here. And the first thing that, the first layer that we need to peel back, I said peeling back the curtain, I, I maybe should have described it more as peeling back the onion, because if we're going to get to the the center of this, there's a couple of layers that we have to peel through. The first and most ridiculous layer is the fact that Americans, when given a chance, will read absolutely anything that happens in the rest of the world through an American political lens. Okay, there could be a coup in Uzbekistan tomorrow, and the headline would be, coup in Uzbekistan has grave implications for Biden infrastructure package, which, spoiler alert, it probably wouldn't, 
although you can never completely tell, but I mean, it's just the way we tend to, to view things. So one of the things that I've seen that has been the most absolute ridiculous thing, and we just need to dispense with this fiction immediately, is the idea that there's this sort of equivalence that's being made more on the left between Hamas and, and what the Palestinian struggle and Black Lives Matter. Okay, just, just this is an invidious con- uh, comparison for Black Lives Matter. This comparison makes Black Lives Matter actually look worse than it is. And I say this as somebody who I think I've been pretty clear, I'm not a huge fan of Black Lives Matter. Okay, but Patrice Khan Colors is not calling for her followers to fire military-style rockets into Chevy Chase. Patrice Khan Colors would be more interested in buying a house in Chevy Chase based on her recent mansion-buying activity, which I'm not opposed to. You know, I respect the hustle. We live in a capitalist system, and if you can if you can monetize, you know, corporations' fascination with and fetish with critical race theory, I mean, more power to you, I guess, you know, in a capitalist system. The fact that you're doing that while railing about destroying capitalism is a much longer conversation, and and, and frankly, there's, there's a, a conversation that could be had about the bourgeois and academic elite dominance of the groups that claim to speak for African Americans, that's a shift from, you know, your more Al Sharpton types who are, you know, for, for all their faults, and Al Sharpton has many faults, somewhat close to the street, to now, you know, the Ibram X. Kennys and Patrice Kahn Colors and all these people who are essentially replacing them with, with a more overtly Marxist, more radical, but, but also more sort of acceptable to elite white society um, perspective. And that's the other big difference, right? Look at the way people who lead the BLM movement are acting. They're not trying to destroy the American elite. They're trying to join it. Okay, this is an act of bargaining to join the elite. Hamas is trying to destroy Israel. They've been very explicit about this. And you need to take them seriously when they say things. One of the biggest problems in in the Middle East is that we take people unser- we take people seriously sometimes when they should when we shouldn't, and we don't take them seriously when we should. In other words, we always want to take them seriously when they say nice things that we like, and then not take them seriously when they say no. Actually, what we really want to do is is you know kill everybody who opposes us, right? So we take them seriously in English and not seriously in Arabic. And that's backwards. But anyway, yeah, the the BLM is not the same kind of movement as Hamas. Okay, just just for another example here, BLM wants to make space for, you know, LGBTQ activists and make a safe space for, you know, trans people of color. The only space that Hamas wants to make for LGBTQ activists and transgender people is space on a spike for their heads. And this is not me being dramatic. There's there's actual beheadings of, of people who are LGBTQ for which Hamas and, and related organizations have been responsible. Okay, these these two things are not the same. And saying that they're the same means you have to either take one of two approaches. If you're BLM, you either have to say, well, you know, all, all of the sufferings are different, right? You know, we haven't suffered the same, which means that if you're going to excuse Hamas, you have to say that they've suffered more which devalues your own cause to a certain extent. I mean, it lowers you down that pyramid of inter- intersectional hierarchy because you have to say that the violence is is uh, justified by a commensurately higher level of suffering. Or you have to say, well, you know, this is part of the, the common sufferings of black and, and, and brown people around the world. And then you kind of have to start saying, okay, why are you guys not firing rockets into Chevy Chase? I use Chevy Chase because Hamas is firing rockets into Tel Aviv, which is sort of a combination of... of 
DC and New York in terms of its role in the political and, and cultural class. And so, you know, suburbs, that would be like Chevy Chase. No, so why why are you not doing that? Well, you then either have to say that you're more civilized than those people, <laughs> which is, you know, isn't that paternalistic cultural appropriation? Or that you should be doing that, in which case you're going to be facing counterterrorism charges. So basically, the comparisons that people are trying to make between if you support Black Lives Matter, you should support the Palestinian cause. This is a lose, 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 triple lose situation for them. So I'm not going to give like political advice to people who think that I'm part of the racist, evil, patriarchal, whatever, whatever, but you should probably stop because there's no way that you end up looking good by comparing yourself to Hamas. So who is Hamas and who is backing them? All right, this is another important thing to, to keep in mind. When we talk about the Palestinian cause, we talk about it as, the, as, it's, as if it is this unified thing, that there are these people called Palestinians and that they have one unified cause. There are people called Palestinians. There is a, you know, from an empirical sort of political science perspective, there is a common group of people called Palestinians who have a common perception of nationhood. But at the same time, there's also no unified cause, because since 2006, there have been two completely separate Palestinian governments. You have Fatah, which is the government that is run by Mahmoud Abbas, and they're the ideological descendants of Yasser Arafat and the Palestinian Liberation Organization. And you have Hamas. Uh, which is the, essentially descended from the Palestinian branch of the Muslim Brotherhood. So they are ideologically linked to the Muslim Brotherhood, which is based originally out of Egypt, which is this Islamist-oriented, um, originally started as an Islamist-oriented professional organization, a political party that was trying to you know, overthrow regimes like you do. The regimes at the time were Arab nationalists. Okay, so these are groups that are not ideologically compatible, but they pretended to be friendly for part of the time, you know, as, as co-belligerents. Well, then in 2006, the Bush administration, out of a, a generally well-intentioned effort to promote democratization, pushed for democratization in the Palestinian territories. Now, pause here for a second. Democratization in the Palestinian territories, absolutely a good idea. The Palestinian Authority is one of the most corrupt governments in the Arab world. This is like unarguable if you're not completely blinkered by ideology. They are, they are incredibly corrupt. They've done very little for their people. They've used Israel as an excuse for bad governance for decades. And it's just, it's an undeniable fact. Um, I'm not going to say the Israelis haven't contributed to that, but the Israelis don't force Fatah to be corrupt and incompetent. The Israelis don't force Hamas to use all the money and foreign aid that they're getting from various foreign actors on rockets instead of building social services and economic infrastructure. Okay, there, we've seen Islamist parties go more the, you know, civilian, let's try governance approach before, you know, with mixed success, generally not very successful. Tunisia is really the only example of where I can say they, they did a decent job with it, but we've seen some of them try it. Hamas explicitly did not. The Israelis didn't force them to make that decision. Okay, so to a certain extent, poor governance in the Palestinian Authority goes back on the Palestinian leadership. And there is recognition of that in the Palestinian street if you go beyond the headlines. Okay, I'm not saying the Palestinians like Israel. I'm saying that you can walk and chew gum at the same time. You can say we think Israel's a problem, and also we don't particularly like the people who are leading us. Evidence of this comes first and foremost from the fact that in 2006, when they were given the chance to vote, do you want to keep the guy who's currently in leadership, or do you, do you want Hamas? They voted pretty explicitly for Hamas. And I don't necessarily think this was because they agreed with Hamas and everything. It's just because they want to throw the bums out. 
you know, we, we have to understand that aspect. So like I said, democratization, good idea. Democratization that essentially says, let's skip straight to elections without first building the infrastructure of democracy never works well. And this was probably the high watermark of the belief in the sort of unbridled, untrammeled faith in elections within the Bush administration. And it sort of disabused them of that notion. And so hopefully, if we're pursuing any kind of democratization strategy, particularly in areas where you don't have a lot of civil society organizations, we are learning from that. Okay, so fast forward. You have Hamas and Fatah have these elections. Hamas wins. This causes a civil war. The Israelis are obviously not best pleased with the idea of Hamas in control of both the West Bank and Gaza Strip. The way this ends is with Hamas in control of Gaza and Fatah in control of the West Bank. And that's been the status quo since about 2006. Now, let's look at dynamics within Israel. So within Israel, there is an Arab population. They're about 20% of the population, give or take. They have seats in the Knesset. But you could think of the Arabs in Israel. The best comparison is not apartheid, which is what people have compared them to. The best comparison is Catholics in Northern Ireland during the height of the Troubles. So they've got political parties, but like Sinn Féin, these are political parties that refuse to participate in the system and refuse to join any government regardless. Now, the Israeli political system moved hard to the right, and we've talked about this before, post-Oslo, in, in, in some of my podcasts that have previewed the absolute plethora of elections that Israel's had over the past several years. We have seen a shift to the right in the Israeli political system. And that has, has definitely left the Arab parties even more on an island. But what is interesting is it seems like there has been a shift in the Arab-Israeli population away from the idea of let's just support these Arab nationalist, hardcore rejectionist parties to, okay, it is going to be what it is going to be. Realistically, what can we get from participation? Can we get more benefits to our for our community from participation? It's a very realistic, pragmatic uh, decision. It does not necessarily mean that these people have accepted the idea of a Zionist state that is, is going to be, in some sense, defined by being a Jewish state. But they have also accepted that, realistically, it's not going to change anytime soon. So they need to play pragmatic and trans transactional politics. This culminates in, after the most recent election, Mansour Abbas, who is the leader of Ram. Ram is a, an Islamic party. Okay, so again, going back to nobody's forcing Hamas to behave the way they're behaving. Mansour Abbas is the head of the Islamic movement Southern Branch, and he's a, a party, you know, part of a, a party that's very socially conservative, that believes in a political system infused by Islamic values, but also recognizes the utility of a certain amount of pragmatism. And Mansour Abbas made an interest, has made some interesting statements over the past year. He has looked at the ultra-Orthodox parties. These are, are parties that are essentially representative of ultra-Orthodox uh, congregations and rabbis within Israel. Very socially conservative, but also transactional parties that have gained benefits from participation in, in society. And these are parties that also rejected Zionism. Okay, The ultra-Orthodox rabbis did not think Zionism was legitimate for a long time because Israel did not fulfill the, the conditions of restoration that were laid out in the Torah and the Talmud. 
Messiah hadn't come back. There's no rebuilding of the temple. It is this sort of secular state. And so it's not seen as legitimate until the 1980s. It's not till the 1980s that the non-Zionists start participating in the Israeli political system. So if you're Mansour Abbas, you're looking at this trajectory of, okay, we've got this religious movement and group that rejected Zionism, but they've started participating and that has brought benefits to their society. And they have have made some accommodations with Zionism, but they've also gained all these benefits. And he's thinking, we could do this. All right, that's essentially Mansour Abbas's pitch. So he splits off from the joint Arab list. This was a list of all the Arab parties running together. And he says, I'm willing to work with whoever wants to work with me to bring a government in, but I want stuff. And Bibi Netanyahu, who is the ultimate Nixonian politician when he's in Hebrew, right? My joke about Bibi is he talks like Reagan in English and Nixon in Hebrew. Bibi Netanyahu is like, great, this is awesome. I will work with anybody. And that's the thing about Bibi. Bibi will absolutely work with anyone. Uh, He will work with the virulently anti-Arab religious Zionist parties that are are linked with Meir Kahana one day, and he'll work with Mansour Abbas the next day. He will work with anybody to maintain his position in power and, you know, get the, the immunity deal that he wants and so on and so forth. Okay. That is just how BB is. So then add to that the fact that Mansour Abbas is his four seats could ultimately determine who's going to end up in government. Now, BB can't get the deal done. Okay. In the, in, after the election because of something, frankly, that BB did, which was quite foolish in my opinion. I'm going to give you my thoughts on Israeli politics. Bibi brokered this alliance between the religious Zionist parties so that their votes wouldn't be wasted, so that he would strengthen the right-wing bloc. Well, then in one of those uh, ways in which Machiavellian maneuvers come back and bite you in the butt, he needed Arab parties with whom the religious Zionists wouldn't work to get himself over the threshold. If the Arab, if the religious Zionists hadn't entered the Knesset, those votes would have probably distributed more evenly to parties that Netanyahu could have worked with, okay? Wasting the votes of those people would have been a better outcome for him. He'd probably be prime minister. He probably would have formed a government. He probably would have been able to persuade Naftali Bennett. You know, he may have been able to persuade some of these other folks. But because he played footsie with the religious Zionists, RZ enters the Knesset. And now you've got a situation in which You've got parties that can't work together that have all said they'll work with you, but they won't work with each other, which is exactly what caused the first election crisis in the first place. And that then it was between Avigdor Lieberman and, and the ultra-Orthodox. So then the mandate passes to Yair Lapid, who is positioning himself as sort of the opposition figure, although he's worked with Netanyahu in the past because Bibi's worked with everybody, and Neftali Bennett. Bennett is a very right-wing figure. He has been accused by some people of being anti-Arab before, but he's working with, trying to work with Ram. And say, can we can we do something here that's going to bring all of these different parties in coalition at least to get rid of Bibi? And then we can try to reset the Israeli political landscape after that fact. Okay, so those negotiations are ongoing when all of the violence that we're talking about now starts. Okay, so that's the prologue within Israel. Outside of Israel, what's going on? Well, you have the Arab Accords, the Abraham Accords, which resets the game in, in a couple of ways. And it makes the Gulf much less dependent on, you know, or, or, or willing to work through the Palestinians, okay? The Gulf now has, through UAE, through Bahrain, through some of the other countries in the Arab Accords, or, or Abraham Accords, now has a direct relationship with Israel. 
and countries that can openly say our relationship with Israel is not going to be dependent on the Palestinians. This is devastating for Palestinian leadership. This is very dangerous for Palestinian leadership because they now have a situation in which they are increasingly less the pass-through. The whole point of the Abraham Accords was to sideline the Palestinian political leadership and say, Israel can make peace with Arab countries without the say-so of Mahmoud Abbas. Essentially, you can make Mahmoud Abbas irrelevant. And, it, and to a certain extent, it worked. So then you have the Biden administration come in. And the Biden administration is not fully repudiating the Abraham Accords, but is sort of backing away from the approach of the Trump administration. Okay? So then the Palestinian Authority, in order, I would say, to regain a sense of legitimacy globally, Mahmoud Abbas and the leadership of Hamas says, we're going to have elections. Yay, elections, elections are great. Everybody likes elections. Until you start seeing the polling come out. Now, here's, here's again where the ability of the Palestinians to walk, chew, walk and chew gum is demonstrated because the Palestinian leadership or the Palestinian population in both the West Bank and Gaza is not necessarily more pro-Israel, okay? They're not fans of the Israelis. They're not changing their minds necessarily on that, but they also don't like the people who are leading them because the polling that we see come out as in, in the run-up to these elections is Fatah is winning all the seats in Gaza, which is controlled by Hamas. Hamas is winning all the seats in the West Bank, which is controlled by Fatah. So nobody likes the leadership in the part of the Palestinian territories that they are in. Two weeks ago, seeing this polling, seeing the writing on the wall, Mahmoud Abbas declares that he's going to suspend elections. Okay, so that's the prologue on the Palestinian side. Now, look at all of this through the lens of Hamas, through the lens of their backers in Iran, because at this point, Hamas is essentially a proxy of Iran. They have, have become fully dependent on the Iranians and, and perhaps in part some of the other countries that are flirting with Islamism like Turkey and Qatar are playing there as well. But they're dependent on this Islamist axis. And through the lens of these groups, what do you see? You see Arabs making peace with Israel. You see Arab Israelis starting to play the political game. You see Arab countries making peace with Israel. You see your position being that used to be unassailable being marginalized. And you see people prioritizing either pragmatic benefits from the Israeli state or opposition to Iran over this sort of consistent opposition to and hatred of Israel. This is a problem for Hamas, and not just a problem, but an existential problem. It's an existential threat. Elections are an existential threat to Mahmoud Abbas. So what you start to see over time is, and as we, as we kind of look at all of these developments, They've got to do something to change the game. Things are slipping away, and you have to do something to change things. Well, what's the thing that you can always do? You can always start violence. You can always escalate violence against Israel with the goal of provoking a disproportionate response from the Israelis. And that's what this is. Everything that's happening right now is about maneuvering within Arab politics. Israel is a pawn in other people's political games, and those people being the various different Arab leaders of Hamas, of uh, Fatah, of Mahmoud Abbas, of Iran, and also to a certain extent the Gulf. Okay, so let's break this down. First of all, what is the goal of Hamas? The goal of Hamas is to get Israel to respond disproportionately, kill a bunch of Palestinian civilians, so that the Palestinians will be more wedded to rejectionism. And so that Hamas can be seen as the leader of the, of the real struggle against Israel, so that they can sideline Fatah. This is a play for essentially 
gaining the allegiance of the Palestinian people, both in Gaza and in, in, in the West Bank, and making Hamas essentially the, the primary actor there. Okay, And they frankly don't care how many of their own civilians have to die to achieve that goal. That's pretty obvious. Okay, you, you put your military targets behind civilians because you want your military opponents to kill civilians. Right, because then it's a it's a heads I win, tails you win, you lose. Heads, uh, you decide not to bomb because they're civilians, and I get to protect you know my my military assets. Tails, you decide to bomb areas where there are civilians, and then we can you know have the the uh, narrative about your inhumanity. Right, so it's a heads I win, tails you lose type scenario of using you know placing their military sites under using civilians as human shields. Right, that's it's, it's just very straightforward. They, they don't care how many Palestinian civilians die. Hamas doesn't care how many Palestinian civilians die. And the more that die, the better from their perspective, because their whole goal is to radicalize as many people as possible. Okay. Iran, their whole goal is to essentially try to force the states in the Arab Accords to distance from Israel. And why Iran would want that is pretty obvious, because the thing that has drawn the Gulf states and Israel close together is opposition to Iran. So anything that divides them from each other is good from from the perspective from that perspective. If you can't do that from Iran's perspective, the next best thing would be to isolate them in the Gulf, in the Arab world. So if the Palestinians are being attacked and the Gulf isn't defending them, then you want to then at a minimum you've hopefully you've isolated them in the Arab street, right? And and that increases Iran's position in many of these other Middle Eastern countries. So that's their end game. Okay. Mahmoud Abbas is just trying to survive. And so some of the escalation here is to distract, okay? He just canceled elections. You don't cancel elections if you think you're going to win them, okay? So he thinks he's not going to win. He needs a distraction. Oldest trick in the book. Now, what about the Arab Israelis that are, are you know, engaging in violence? First of all, I suspect that we're going to find that there's a lot of outside agitation that is involved with this because the Arab Israelis you know, having more peace with and acceptance of Israel and sort of pragmatic, realistic accommodation, even if it's not everything you want, but getting that half a loaf, that's very bad for Hamas, for Iran, for some of their external backers, because that then sends the message to the Palestinians that you can get something if you play ball with the Israelis, right? You don't have to love them. You don't have to like them. You don't have to accept the Zionist project. You don't have to, you know, start speaking Hebrew and, you know, put on, um, you know, go, go, go pray at the Wailing Wall. But if you make some reasonable accommodations and you play the game, you'll get stuff, right? So there's a, there's a certain, a certain amount of pragmatism in what Mansour Abbas is doing. And that is exactly the type of pragmatism that they want to discourage here. The message that the actors that are, are going to benefit from this violence want to send to the Arab Israeli citizen is, it doesn't matter what you do, they'll never accept you. So you might as well be a rejectionist. You'll never benefit from this. They'll always crack down on you. They'll always come out and, and try to kill Arabs. A friend of mine was, was um, talking with me last week and was saying that, you know, he was hearing reports from, from friends of his who were Jewish in Israel that the police were being told, whatever you do, go easy on the Arabs that are protesting, even if they're being violent, you know, go, use as minimal force as possible. He said, "Why would, I don't understand why they would do that. I said, because the, because the Israelis are smart. They know the score here. They know that the, the, the point of this is from, from, again, people who don't care how many Arab Israelis die in the process, but their goal 
Their point is to drive a wedge between this younger generation of Arab Israelis and the, the mainstream of Israeli society. They want the Arab Israelis ghettoized. They want them to engage in rejectionist politics. They want them to eschew any accommodation, any, any kind of cooperation, because any type of cooperation or anything like that is potentially a direct threat to their power, a direct threat to their ability to sort of maintain this unified front. Okay, so that's what is going on here. That's what's going on under under the surface. And so if you peel the onion back, what you see is this is essentially a pair of, uh, power play within Arab states, within the Arab world. It's not necessarily even about Israel. I mean, it's all about Israel in the sense that, you know, Israel's existence and how, how we're going to respond to it, you know, for these, these actors. But it's not even specifically caused by anything that the Israelis did. The Sheikh Jarrah thing, you know, which is this neighborhood in, in Jerusalem where there's, you know, complicated legal claims where the, you know, I mean, the Israelis have title and that's not the complicated part. The complicated part is that you've had these Palestinian families that have been living in the houses. And then there's this whole like legal issue of squatters rights and squatters rights are complicated. That's where things do get complicated. And, you know, then how that ties in with the other broader issues of right of return of the Palestinians who had their, lost their property in the 48 war and what rights they have to return and so on and so forth. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of inconsistency that goes, that goes around with that. But that in and of itself is not the proximate cause here, or that, that might be the proximate cause, but it's not the real cause. The real cause are these other factors, these other underlying factors. And this, again, is an area where we, we are taking people seriously in areas where we shouldn't. In terms of when people say, oh, you know, this this is the, the thing that is causing this. No, no, it's not. you got to look beyond the surface of that. Always in the Middle East, look for the hidden agenda, the hidden hand. Who is pulling the strings, right? Look for the geopolitics. Don't trust what you're being told, surface level, because that's not where we operate. Because that is, that is for general consumption. It's not that the people who are telling you that don't believe it. It's just that there's more going on under the surface. And they may or may not be telling you about that. They may or may not know that. The mayor may not even believe that that is a factor that's going on. Part of the reason people, you know, and there's this, this joke about people in the Middle East believing in conspiracy theories. Part of the reason is because conspiratorial politics are endemic in the region. And so you need to look into behind what's kind of going on here a little bit more. Now, there's one other factor here, which is important, which is the role of the Emiratis. And, and one important question, which is what are the Israelis going to do next? Because there are two conflicting imperatives that Israel has in their response in Gaza. One imperative is Israel is a status quo power, which that is like an understatement. It's hard to get more status quo than the Israelis. The Israelis don't like change. They don't want change. They are very reactive focused. They don't want to be proactive. They would rather just be able to, you know, swat flies, essentially. You know, if, if something comes up, we'll swat it back down because they don't want to get involved. They don't want to get involved in something that could destabilize the environment because stability and predictability are essential for them. And because Israel, for a variety of reasons, some of which are historical, some of which, frankly, go back to the Holocaust, some of which go back to geopolitics of, of the way in which they found themselves since the beginning. It's a very strong survival instinct. OK, people who are in survival mode tend not to be risk takers. So you need to look at Israeli policy and actions through that lens of their very risk averse. On the other hand, if you don't deal with Hamas in Gaza in a substantive way, if you don't remove Hamas effectively from Gaza, 
then there's always a possibility this could happen again. And so every now and then Israel gets to the point where they're like, okay, this is enough. And they go into an area and they, and they try to essentially, you know, clear. The complicating factor here is, is the Emirates. Within the Palestinian elections that were going to happen, there is a candidate that I believe is backed by the Emirates. I don't have proof of this, but he's a guy named Mohammed Dahlan. Uh, Dahlan used to be one of the higher-ups in the PLO. He's lived in the Emirates for a while, and he has been critical of Mahmoud Abbas, who has been critical of the uh, Abraham Accords. So he's been criticizing Abbas for his level of criticism of, of the Abraham Accords. I suspect that this is a guy that the Emirates are backing. The Emirates and the Saudis as well, the Gulf countries in general, like to work through proxies. The Saudis did this with Rafiq Hariri in Lebanon. Rafiq Hariri was their guy. He was their proxy within the Sunni community in Lebanon. And so they, they tend to counter the proxies with proxies. So if Hamas is Iran's proxy, and Fatah is essentially not willing to play along with being the proxy of the Gulf states who are in a regional conflict with Iran, if those Gulf states are going to form a deal with Israel, then the Gulf states are going to find somebody else to be their proxy, particularly the Emiratis, who, again, that's, that's how they operate in a lot of these contexts. I suspect Dahlan is the guy that they were setting up for that. So do you have a situation in which the Israelis decide, we've got to get Hamas out of Gaza, they go in and do it, and then that is followed up by Dahlan is brought in as an administrator of Gaza by the Emirates in a deal that's brokered by the Emiratis. And then they throw ridiculous amounts of money to rebuild Gaza as a way of essentially establishing their guy with a firm beachhead in Palestinian politics. So he's not just coming out as an exile. He's coming in as the guy who rebuilt Gaza, rebuilt it with Emirati money to be sure, but rebuilt it nonetheless. So is that the play that the Emiratis are thinking of? And can they, if that is their play, if that's their goal, can they convince the Israelis to move off of their risk averse posture and go into Gaza? The unfortunate reality is that however this plays out, there's the people that are going to suffer are the people on the ground in Gaza. You know, the Israelis are, I think, trying to do minimalistic in terms of civilian damage. The Israelis do not want to be in Gaza. They don't want to go into Gaza. They don't want to deal with Gaza. There's a reason why Ariel Sharon, not exactly Mr. Left-Winger, pulled all of the settlements out of Gaza. It's just like, we are done with this area. We are not going to be in this space. We're out. So they don't want to be there. West Bank is different. West Bank is much more complicated because you have large Israeli settlements in areas of the West Bank and it's, it's all much more intermixed. But Gaza, like they don't have to go into if they don't want to. And they really don't want to. But on the other hand, Hamas is still there. And so what's going to end up happening? My suspicion is that, honestly, it's about 50-50. Do they, do they go in? And, and it does seem like, again, based on that polling, there's a certain amount of people, you know, there, there, there's a, a lot of people in Gaza who are fed up with Hamas, who would be ready to back somebody else, but who are probably not going to do any sort of uprising because Hamas is very militant, very heavily armed, and has pervasive control over that society, as the Islamists tend to do when they, when they get control. You know, they are watching everybody all the time. So... What's going to happen there? I don't know. I don't know. I, do, I don't think that Israel is going to permit a Hamas presence in Gaza indefinitely. And so at some point, they're going to go in and try to deal with that. But what ends up happening in the long run, I would say, is, is anybody's guess. But those are the dynamics to watch. How does Israel ultimately respond? What is their ultimate posture? Is it going to be you know, target, trying to do sort of targeted killings of Hamas leadership? 
Or are they going to go in, all right, we've got to get them out root and branch and bring in a new political leadership? If it's the latter, then that's because that will only happen if you start to see a, a large-scale operation of Israel in Gaza going in to root out Hamas root and branch. That's only because they've, they've worked a deal with the Emirates and they've got the end game planned out. If they don't, then that means that Israel is essentially going to try to take a, a status quo, least change option. Right. So here's the question. What is Netanyahu thinking? There's no option for him really politically that's good. People who are saying that Netanyahu did this because he wants to like somehow be better off from a, from a perspective of getting like reelected as prime minister. Yeah. No. In no way is this good for Bibi. Because you've gotten to the point where mo I think increasing percentages of the population in Israel are saying, look, you're the reason for the political deadlock here. If it wasn't for you, we'd have a stable government and maybe they wouldn't try this. So, yeah, I don't know what he's going to ultimately decide. Does he decide, I'm going to get rid of Hamas in Gaza and that's going to be my, my last hurrah? I'll go in, I'll be successful, we'll build you know, a, a new Palestinian leadership in that area. Maybe Dahlan is involved. Maybe the Emiratis are backing it. And that's his swan song. And after that, just dare them not to give him immunity? Or is he thinking, I'm just going to ride this out? I'm going to ride this out. You know, Iron Dome is working. We will we'll try to push things off as long as we can and just, you know, hope that we can wait it out. And that's that's ultimately going to be the question. Because, because in the end, it does affect the Israeli people. Even if, you know, the Israelis aren't the ones who are, are driving the train on this, how their government responds will determine the outcome in large part. But this is not a move, as some have suggested, that demonstrates the Arab realignment uh, that the, Arab, uh, the Abraham Accords have represent has failed. This is a move of actors who are feeling increasingly desperate. And so that is just the reality uh, to keep in mind. Ultimately, I don't know that this is going to systemically change things unless we see widespread changes in the perception that Arabs and Jews within Israel have of one another. If that dynamic is shifted, if the Arab-Israeli population does in fact come to believe that rejectionism is the only way to go because there's no, you can't really ever gain benefits uh, by working with Israel, then that will, that will have, have been, it's basically the only way that, there can be, that they can be successful. And so one of the things that the Israelis should be asking their allies to do for them is counter-propaganda in Arabic, talking about how, you know, the Arab Israelis are again being used as a pawn by these outside actors and, and put the put the blame squarely on Iran, you know, the, the Shia non-Arab Iran, and say, you know, that the these other folks are being sort of duped and hoodwinked by them and that they don't really care about the, the people on the ground. I think that's probably going to happen at some point, but is it, whether it's successful or not, I don't know. Aside from that, I don't see this changing much. The Abraham Accords are not going to fall apart. The Gulf countries are not going to suddenly decide that they have an overwhelming love of Hamas. And I don't see the facts on the ground changing in the direction that Hamas and their allies want them to in any measurable way. All right, so that's going to be a wrap for this episode. Please remember to rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast provider. Tell all of your friends. Tell anyone that you've discussed these issues with. Tell anyone that is interested in politics to rate and subscribe to Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte. I've got a couple of 
ideas for future shows coming forward. We're going to get into a little bit more of the sort of theoretical as things slow down a little bit more over the summer. The next practical thing that I know we're going to do is, of course, the post-Democratic primary wrap-up here in Virginia. Depending on whether it's exciting or not, we may also do an episode on the New Mexico special election. If it is boring, and by boring I mean if the Democrats win by five points or more, which is within expected outcomes, you won't see um, an episode on that. Special elections that go the way we expect them to don't actually tell us anything. And so, you know, special elections are really a heads I win, tails you lose. You know, if if the party that's expected to win them wins them, it doesn't tell us anything about what the environment's going to be like in 2022. If, the, if, if you are expected to win and you lose, that may or may not tell us things about the way, the way things are heading in, in 2022. I can tell you that if the Democrats lose New Mexico first on June 1st, that is going to be a game changer in a number of ways. So if that happens, we will talk about it. If it doesn't, then we will probably not do a special episode on that. But otherwise, probably do a couple of, of more thinky episodes, you know, about some some general things. And I've got a couple of, of just sort of fun ideas. Uh, one is is a mock draft for Senate candidates. So if you're the Democrats and Republicans, who would you ideally want to draft into each of the competitive Senate races? And then how would you allocate those in terms of if you had to make draft preferences? And then, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll do a couple of other, a little bit more off-the-wall episodes. I feel like we've been a little bit too pragmatic and policy focused and not enough into the to the weird and wacky and you know talking about pizza preferences and path dependence and things like that so we're going to try to fix that a little bit this summer unless events overtake that so with that being said again thank you for listening to this episode and for blind politics this is dr nolte signing off (laughs) 